uh, we are going to be on a topic today uh, in, in the flow of getting towards Easter of a person in Scripture that, to my recollection, I've never really talked about. And I was in a Bible study on Wednesday where we were talking about him, very famous person in Scripture, incredibly unpopular, and I felt like I'm going to change my message. I was just going to regurgitate what I was going to do last week and uh, do the classic pastor move where I skip the week and I'll just come back to it. But I felt like God wanted us to go a different direction. And so we're going to be talking about one of the most famous persons that no one wants to talk about in all of Scripture, headed towards Easter. And his name is, you guys, did I give it away? Do you know who it is? His name is Judas, the name that you never want to name your kid after. And so if you turn your Bibles to the book of Luke, um, it's the most famous story of betrayal in all of human history. It makes for a plot that, that thickens uh, in the narrative of Scripture. It's the guy that you love to hate. And what's so cool about it is you can, you can very much relate to this story. And what I want to propose to you today as we walk through this story is that in some ways we're all Judas, and then in other instances we've all felt the pain of Judas's in our life but then looking it through a spiritual lens of what we need to learn from this guy spiritually because we all look like him on some level. I, I found out this week there are eight different men in the New Testament. Did you know that? There are eight different men in the New Testament named Judas. Seven of them really wish they had different names. Judas, the Iscariot that we're talking about, is named 20 times in the New Testament Two times, or 20 times in the Gospels, two times in the New Testament, never a good thing. He's always last when they mention the 12 together because he's the least, he's the most sinful, he's the guy that doesn't have Jesus' back. But nonetheless, here's what's so crazy about this story, and it's even like theologically confusing, and people have bickered about how this actually works. Nonetheless, Jesus, knowing everything, past, present, future, picks a leadership team, and he takes the betrayer, and he puts him on his team. And so there's this, it's an interesting storyline. He spends three years with Christ. Judas sees demons cast out. He sees people healed. He eats meals with Christ. He sleeps under the stars with the disciples. He's able to pray with Christ if he chooses to do so at any time, although I think he was a false convert, so I don't know if he ever even did that. He lived a life with Christ Served by Christ, Christ washes this guy's feet, knowing what he's going to do to him. And although he has all of these experiences on the peripheral, instead of serving Christ, he stabs Christ in the back. The Bible also says in John 12 that Judas was a thief of sorts, that he had financial responsibilities in the ministry, and he would rip people off. And what I want to do, and this is just me being like theorizing, I, I kind of get into the whole psychology of the scene, the story behind the story. I want to present to you an idea that I have that maybe you look at it and you go, that's crazy, or you look at it and you go, I never thought about it like that. That's interesting to me. It's definitely interesting to me, so I'm going to propose it to you. I think Judas was a sociopath. In fact, even in the study on Wednesday that we did, I felt like he got off a little easy. I think Judas is absolutely evil to the core. When, when I read the narrative of Judas, although we can be somewhat like him, I think he processes things psychologically that puts him in a 1% per, percent to maybe 2% category of antisocial behavior. And so I, I just want to bring that to light as well. I think he's highly, or I know he's highly manipulative. Let me show you an example. John chapter 12. 
Uh, many of you probably know this story, even if you're new to the faith. You've heard about the woman who has nothing that comes to Christ with her tears and her perfume. Heard the story? And uh, the Bible says that as she's pouring out this perfume, we, we learn that it was costing her about 300 days' wages in this expensive perfume that she pours on Jesus' feet and wipes with her tears and with her hair, which is her glory. And Judas steps up because he, he's very manipulative, and he says, hey, that's a lot of money, Jesus. We should take all of that money and give it to the poor. So he seems like he's civically minded. He seems like he's a good guy. And then we learn also in that narrative that really he just wanted that money to steal it. And so he's incredibly manipulative, which builds my case that he has sociopathic tendencies. I thought maybe some of you won't care, but does anyone care about stuff like that? All right, well, let's move on. No, but check this out. Maybe you just have an itch. You're like, I want to be a psych major someday. Signs of a sociopath, or maybe you're sitting next to someone that's really been bothering you lately. Signs of a sociopath, persistent, that was a joke, persistent disregard for the rights of others, that's Judas. Disregarding the law indicated by lying repeatedly and conning others for personal gain or pleasure, Judas. Acting impulsively, not planning ahead, definitely Judas. Being easily provoked or aggressive, Judas. Recklessly disregarding safety or the safety of others, not feeling remorse, indicated by indifference or rationalization of hurting or mistreating others. And so he has these traits that don't just make him bad, they make him methodical, they make him absolutely calculated. And so onto the scene, headed towards Easter, this is the story of Judas and Jesus. Verse 47, Luke 22, the Bible says this. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas was one of the 12, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Ultimate act of betrayal. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of a man, a son of man with a kiss? And when those, those who were around him saw that he would, not, he would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know that that's Peter. But Jesus said, no more of this. This is how he treated his enemies. No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When was I, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. And the Bible says, and this is your hour in the power of darkness. In first service, that played out so beautifully because it was completely dark in here. It was almost like we planned it, but we didn't. This is your hour, the power of darkness. There, there's a season where you're going to think you get what you want, but because I'm sovereign, it's all a part of the larger plan. I'm not just going to be arrested. I'm not just going to be beaten. I'm not going to just be murdered, crown of thorns on my head. It's all about what's happening after that. That Sunday's coming, and on Sunday, I am rising from death to conquer it. And so you're just a part of the overall plan. But he's in the garden. This is why I think it's important to look at Judas and his character and put him in a different category than most. Because he's in the garden, and, and, and who knows he's going to be in the garden? Judas knows he's going to be in the garden. How does Judas know he's going to be in the garden? Because that's where he goes. That's what he does. He's spiritually disciplined. He's perfect in every way. And so the garden wasn't just a place for him to get some vegetables or some fruit. 
For Christ, the garden was a place to go have some spiritual solitude. It wasn't a place where he just found it. Like, it wasn't his Airbnb. He already knew about this spot. He had full permission to be there on a regular basis. And so Judas knows where Jesus is going to be because Jesus is pretty predictable in his spirituality and his walk with God. He's already been there a handful of times, to say the least. And Judas, in this different level of manipulation, knows exactly where to go to find Christ because Christ has a pattern to his life and how he operates. And he knows he's going to be in the garden because that's where he goes and he's broken and he is, you know, sweating blood and it's personal. And in that moment, Judas, who does not care about anybody but Judas, says, I know where we can find Christ, follow me. And the mob mentality awaits and they go to find Christ and they grab him when it's dark. He says, this is your hour, the power of darkness, the time of darkness. And he betrays him with a kiss. This isn't really that weird. It sounds super weird to us as Midwesterners who don't even hug, let alone kiss. But this was a common cultural greeting amongst men. And so when he does this, can you imagine the disciples, the other 11 kind of sitting back, the mob starts coming towards Christ, Christ knows this is coming. Can you imagine the disciples, how infuriating that would have been? That would have been like a, a bro hug in the time or, a, or, you know, just like a friendly handshake. And he has the audacity to go to this place of prayer that's intimate and personal because he knows Christ personally. And he goes up to him like nothing's even wrong and he kisses him. And I imagine the other disciples, they wanted to just murder him right there. There is something about a deep-rooted betrayal when you really trust someone. That's why there's no hate like marriage hate. I'm being serious. I wasn't joking. There is no hate like marriage hate when the marriage goes bad because those things that are closest to us have the most power to affect us in a negative way. That type of betrayal is taking place on a level that we can't really imagine. This isn't betrayal. This is ultimate betrayal. And he goes and he kisses Christ Christ says, you betray me with a kiss. And here, here's the theological trap that we have to work through. This is something that people debate. Like Micah was talking to me about this at breakfast on Wednesday and how this works. The Bible says this. The big question that people have, and I want to try to answer it the best I can uh, by listening to people smarter than me. The big question is, was Judas responsible? Because the Bible says, if you know the Bible, the Bible says that Satan entered Jesus. The Bible says earlier, Judas opened up his heart to Satan. So, so how does that even happen? Number one, I propose Judas was never a Christian because you can't be possessed by Satan if you're a follower of Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in you. But number two, so how do you look at Judas? Do you go, well, how is it really, have you ever thought of this? How is it really Judas' fault if Satan's the one that enters him? And let me propose this to you. Long before Satan ever entered Judas' heart, Judas had already made a decision that he was going to set up Jesus, that he wasn't going to be loyal to Jesus. And so he had already, in a sense, carved out his path, and then Satan comes along and empowers that desire. And I think there's a word for us in that. Although we can't be demon-possessed if we're in Christ, we can definitely be tempted by Satan if we're not following Christ and living a lifestyle that's disciplined in him. And I heard one guy say it this way. I think this is worth actually writing down if you write things down. Judas was the captain, Satan was the wind. Judas is the captain of a ship and he knows where he wants to go. It's already pre-established. He knows that ultimately he's not loyal to Christ. 
And so he has this, this terrain that he's traveling. He has this water under him. He's the captain. He's the boat. But it's a sailboat. And when he already says, this is where I'm going, I'm going over here on this trajectory, when he says that, he opens up his heart to all sorts of demonic things in his life, and Satan will gladly be the wind in your sail. And Satan was absolutely the wind in Judas's sail. Other thing we don't know is why. Maybe you don't care about the whys. I love the why. Why did Judas do what he did? Three popular theories. Number one is this, that it was political. I think this is definitely true, by the way. That he saw Jesus as a political ruler as far as the other disciples in the same light. They saw him in that way too. That he was a political ruler. He was the Messiah for the Jewish people. That he was going to overthrow the Roman dictatorship over them. And so when he started to see that it wasn't going to play out the way he thought it should play out, he sold them out. Second theory is this, that he was just jealous because Jesus was so powerful and he wasn't. I think that's true as well. And then the third one that there's a lot of evidence for is that it was greed. That Jesus was always in it for the money. He, he saw this political figure coming that was going to make his own pocketbook wealthier. And so being a part of his leadership team, when you're around powerful people, you can oftentimes make money off of their own fame. And so when he realized that wasn't the case, he just sold him out for the, least, the most amount he could get at the time and tried to wipe his hands of it. I don't think it's one option. I think all of those things are true about Judas which even enhances this idea that he was absolutely numb to people and their emotions and their will, and he just saw them as objects. And so he saw Christ himself as an object where he could get what he wanted from him, and when it wasn't working, he just sold him out. We don't really know all of the whys, but I think that's kind of the point, that God leaves this open-ended for us to examine and then ask some serious questions towards our own faith and how we perceive this story so that we can grow in Christ from it. And so here's the first thing that I want us to walk in. We're going to move faster, just three things. Number one, theologically, we have all been, and this is what we have to own, we have all been Judas. Now, I'm not saying we're all sociopaths. Hopefully, for my own safety, look at me, none of us are, okay? But on some level, we have all been Judas, because there's a few things that Judas does that we do. Number one, Judas had a price. Judas had a price. For him, it was 30 pieces of silver. I'm sure he would have loved to have had more, but that's all he could get. That was the going rate. He was following Jesus because Jesus was a means to an end. Jesus was not the in pursuit. We've talked about that before in church. Christ is not the all-powerful genie in the sky where the world revolves around you and orbits around your universe. And when you don't get what you want from Christ, this is what you're going to do if Jesus is just a genie in the sky for you. As soon as he is not the in pursuit, if he's just a means to an end, as soon as you see that not working out for you, mainly life and betterment, then you're going to check out and ditch that life and betterment improvement plan because it's not about worshiping him, it's about worshiping self like Judas. And when you worship self, what you really have affections for is self. And so Jesus has no role in your life because he's not gonna play out that way. Does that make sense? If he's just a means to an end, you're going to ditch him the first time life gets hard, and that's what Judas does. He has a philosophical worldview that's broken. 
He has a price tag in terms of silver. And we look at this story and we go, man, this guy is so wicked. And although that's true, we have to actually ask ourselves this question, in what way is my heart the same way? Most specifically, what's my price tag? What are those things that I have affections for more than Christ? And I'll tell you, as a counselor, most commonly, it's bad relationships. Christ, I, I will follow you if I can have this person over here. Or Christ, I will follow you if my life can look better in this arena. And as long as I don't have to make any real sacrifices, I have no problems. You know what Judas was really good at because he was so manipulative? He was really good at playing the part. He was really good at looking the part. As long as he could not have to make any real sacrifices, he was in. But the second he understood that Christ came to die, he was out. And so he had a price tag. Secondly, this, he had an agenda. He had a very clear agenda. Judas, I'm going to say it again. I want you to hear it. Judas was all about Judas. Judas was all about Judas. Judas, and so he had a clear agenda, and it was look out for number one. The second thing is this. This is what we just came out of for the last few months. Everybody, we have all been hurt by Judas, and so we've all been Judas, and we've all been hurt by Judas, and that second piece is really what can define us in a lot of ways. That in the narrative of life, what we just came out of, and I'll say it again, but you guys have probably all memorized it by now, Judas represents a wound that causes you to realize that your world can't be trusted. That's Judas's narrative in your life. That, that all of us can relate to him in his selfishness on some level, but many of us can relate to him in the sense that we've had someone like that in our life, and I just don't think it's an accident that right before Christ goes to the cross, he gives this beautiful example of what it looks like to deal with pain, what it looks like to deal with conflict, what it looks like when your world is broken, when your trust is broken, when even those people in your inner circle stab you in the back, they shake your hand with their right hand, and they're quickly ready to shank you with their left. Why does Christ give us that example? Because it's so relatable that on some level, so many of us have had something like that happen. Here's what I know about Judas, and I put this down, I think this is gonna be on the screen. Judas has a methodical approach to how he deals with us. Judas hits low, you can interpret that how you will. Judas hits low, and he always hits when you're not looking. In fact, if he hit when you're looking, he wouldn't be Judas. It's those things, not that you can see coming, that are gonna wreck your world. It's those things where you had no idea, and when you have no idea, your brain goes haywire, and you realize that your world can't be trusted, and the people that you thought were safe aren't really safe, and when that starts taking place in your life, that's when you will be at your lowest point. We've all been hurt by a situation or a person specifically that looks a heck of a lot like Judas in our lives. Judas hits low. And Judas hits when we're not looking. There's this thing in psychology called scripting. And scripting is this, that you are more predictable than you want to admit. And that when you are not living in a predictable pattern, anxiety is provoked, which can bring change, which is good. 
but it can also wreak havoc on your mind. Like, I'm incredibly predictable in my life. I wake up, I have the same energy drink and the same almonds for breakfast. I've talked about this before at church. I go to about three spots that I eat at, Mazatlan, Sammy's for breakfast, whatever, and I, and I push repeat over and over and over and over again. And when those things get disrupted, all of a sudden, my mind can wreak havoc. Judas hits low, and he hits when you're not looking, and it's not the bad news that's so bad, it's the unforeseen bad news that can really mess with your head, and that's what Judas does. And so we have all sorts of ways to respond to that that are incredibly unhealthy when we deal with that Judas trauma in our life. The third thing is this, and this is the closer, and it's going to take a few minutes. There are lessons to be learned from Jesus on how we deal with Judas. We can all learn from Judas. And as we walk into this next week where there are going to be gobs of people coming for all sorts of reasons into this place, just a heads up, get here early. Okay, it's like the Disneyland of Christianity. Next week, the lines are long. And, and I picked this story because of where we're going this next week. We're going to be here Friday And we're going to be mourning the crucifixion. We're going to be worshiping Christ in his suffering. And then Sunday, it's all about celebrating the resurrection. But we need to first learn from what happens right before that, and this time, from this guy named Judas. And the first lesson is this. Being around Jesus, write it down, write it down. Being around Jesus does not mean that you're a follower of Jesus. Reading the Bible, you can even memorize scripture. And I know people like this in my life, especially this last year I've seen some of this with people that I thought were really solid, and then it's like they had all the right answers. Have you met someone like that? Not you, but someone else? Not you. Don't get all angry. Not you. It's like they could tell you this, and they they can go on social media, and it's like, man, Jesus did this, and Jesus did that, and and they almost get, the more they sin, the preachier they get. Have you met those people? I don't trust them, just so you know. They they honestly always look perfect, too, and they're just a train wreck. That, That you can be around the church, you can memorize scripture, you can look the part, But here's what you need to hear right before Easter about Judas. Being around Jesus does not mean that you follow Jesus. Being around Jesus, you can still go to hell. Proof's in the pudding. That's Judas. Judas was around Christ. He was hearing God's word. He was hearing from God himself. He sat under the best teaching. He went to the best seminary. Seminary Jesus Christ. He didn't go to good conferences. He went to the best conferences, small group conferences, one-on-one time with the best preacher in the history of the universe, the preacher who actually created the universe and sustains it in the palm of his hands. Jesus Christ himself. Judas had the best commentaries, went to the best conferences, had the best facade, and right now, from everything we know, he's in hell. Didn't know Christ. Because you can be around Jesus and not be a follower of Jesus. That is the truth. We can learn from Judas this, that being around Jesus doesn't mean you follow Jesus. And being around Christians does not mean that you're a Christian. 
Now, the byproduct of being a Christian is you want to be around other Christians, but you don't get saved because your dad and your mom were a Christian. You don't get saved by doing some spiritual act in a church that somehow sanctifies you without a personal relationship with Christ. There's no spiritual hoop you can jump through to somehow get in God's graces because you're a sinner and God is perfect and he sends his perfect son to die in your place. The only way you get to heaven is through saying, Jesus, I believe that you're my savior and now I'm gonna pick up my cross, I'm gonna follow you. Being around Christians does not make you a Christian. It has to be between you and Christ. Here, here's another thing. I thought I heard someone else say this one. This is really good. This one's convicting me as we walk into this special week where the church is going to be packed and the, and the gospel is going to be presented. So invite everyone you know. Write this down. This is good. Remorse. Remorse is not repentance. This is Judas's story. In fact, if you want to do a cool case study, take two people. Judas, learn about him. Come back to me. Tell me if you think he was a sociopath. If, you're, if you think he wasn't, then it's okay. You probably just don't understand, but, but you can build your case for me for that. Judas versus, versus Peter, right? Because Peter is, is messing up in this same narrative. Jesus has this conversation He says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Remember Peter's response? No, I would never do that. And then when the rooster crows, what does he do? He's just broken. He's repentant. He doesn't know what. He's a mess. And then his repentance leads him in a different direction. And by the time Christ resurrects and he hears about Christ's resurrection, what does Peter do? He starts running to the tomb. He wants this relationship with Christ. Peter, God uses Peter's downfall as a means of actually growing him spiritually where he says, Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. I'm looking for people that aren't perfect but are humble and are willing to serve me. And when they mess up, they're repentant. Judas has a false repentance. He has remorse. The difference between remorse and repentance is this. Remorse feels bad. Repentance makes changes. Remorse feels bad. But do you know who remorse feels bad for? Who? Right? Remorse feels bad for self. Judas feels bad, but he feels bad for Judas. Because above all, Judas loves Judas. It's not enough to feel bad. I felt bad a lot in my life, and it's just only put me on a downward spiral of self-pity and loathing. Christ is after humility that leads to repentance. Here's the last one. I heard someone say this. This is just old man wisdom here. How your life ends, this is Judas' story. How your life ends is far more important than how it begins. That's the hope in the story. Judas is a bad guy, but there's contrast. There's other people to look at. This is a larger case study that we need to examine this Easter. How your life ends is far more important than how it begins. It's like marriage. The first day is great. You cut the cake. You get the dress. You send out the invites. You take the pictures. You put it on social media. Everyone thinks it looks perfect, right? That's not that big of a deal, though, because I've been a pastor too long. I got too many people that I'm studying, right? I've seen it. And I know in my own life that marriage is tough. Marriage is awesome, but marriage is tough. It's like marriage. It's like the last day is really where you should have the wedding. 
not, not in a consummation standpoint, but oh, that was too much info. But, but, but in the sense that that's the day that should really be celebrated, shouldn't it? It's like 50, 60 years later. We just have someone in church. They lost their husband on uh, just the other day, 52 years, right? I mean, that, that's the last day where you're looking at that person and going, man, I love you, even though you have all these faults and all these dysfunctions, and you've chosen to love me, even though I'm far less than perfect, and we have done this thing together, and how it ends is so much more beautiful than how it begins, That's the lesson of Judas. That's the tragedy of Judas. He has everything at his fingertips. Jesus Christ himself, and he ends, the book of Acts says, by hanging himself on a tree with his insides spilling out. It's a tragedy. It's a shame. The last day is what we strive towards when we meet Christ face to face, and he sees us, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be hope spoken into your life this morning, that we can be a Peter instead of a Judas. This was it, and then I felt like there was one more thing. So this one's free. Are you ready? The last thing I want to tell you, and then the the praise band can come back up here even. They can start working their way back up because this is pretty quick. I, I just had this idea in my head that I thought I needed to share with you as your pastor. And the idea is this. That some of us have allowed Judas to define our life instead of being a part of our testimony. And I want you to just kind of think about that. Some of us have allowed Judas to define our personhood instead of being a part of our testimony. That those things that have happened to us, and I know we just came out of this, and so this is all fresh on my mind, but I want to make sure I hit this because I think it's relevant for this text. All those things that Judas did to us, and Judas takes the face of an ex-spouse or a, a, a father figure in our life or a family member that violated our trust and these traumas and these things that have happened. And so these things are a big deal. They can't be ignored. They can't be suppressed, or you're going to have all sorts of issues. But if you allow that to define who you are instead of allowing Christ's death and resurrection and your new life in him to define who you are, you're always going to sit in the same stuff and nothing changes. Do you remember? Nothing changes if nothing changes. And so instead of saying, yes, this is a part of my story, like like Christ, I mean, he has this Judas in his life, but in no way does Judas change the the trajectory of where Christ already knows he's going. Judas doesn't define Christ. Christ is the savior of the universe. He knows in a few days, he's not just dying, he's rising from death. And so many times, and just working with people, and even in my own narrative of life, I've allowed Judas to define me instead of being a part of my testimony. And I want to challenge you with that as we close. What does that look like for you? In which ways are you like him? In which ways have you been violated by someone like him? And how is he defining your life? Have you moved past that and say, Christ, you are the one that's ruling and reigning in my life. And you have allowed these things to happen. You didn't cause these things to happen, but you've allowed these things to happen in my life to be a part of my testimony so that I can reach other people with the gospel as I live this disciplines of a godly life that we're going to be studying in the next couple of months. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. 
For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.